0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. So, how do we bring the last few weeks, our doctrine of God and humanity, sin and salvation, the scriptures, the church, spiritual formation, all to bear on one of our culture's most divisive issues sexuality? When I was Uh, Somewhere to the tune of 14 or so years old, I befriended a similarly antisocial youth group compatriot with the same penchant for things like goth fashion and weird industrial music. And then we became close friends, me and this guy, and a couple of like-minded weirdo girls that we found along the way. And we made a little rabble, a little Group. We sat around reading transgressive fiction and listened to creepy bands and we traded short stories and song ry- lyrics that we'd written and we freaked out our parents and pastors with our angsty fashion sense and taste in music. And then one day, this friend and I were sitting together and my friend told me what part of me suspected but most of me assumed was impossible, that he was gay. For both of us, the conservative Southern Baptist world of our upbringing had become kind of claustrophobic and alienating. But for him, it had become suffocating. I'd never known anyone personally at this point in my life to tell me that they were gay, let alone one of my closest friends. And he tried, he told me tried to like girls, waited for it to happen, pushed down his desire, wanting so badly to snuff it out, but he just couldn't keep it up. Not anymore. The way he told it, he'd been miserable for years. And hiding in this kind of baldly homophobic world of small-town southern evangelicalism had become so lonely and so punishing that his only recourse was to fess up and leave it all behind. And now where before we had shared some sense of communion over what I'd believed was our common outsiderness, I could see now that his struggle against the status quo, a world to which he felt he could not conform, though similar in some ways, was something else entirely. His story was not like my story. And I remember listening to him tell me how he felt. I didn't scold him. I wasn't afraid or disgusted or something like that. He was still the same old friend, but I genuinely did not know what to say. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are in a series that will become our church's doctrinal statement. What we believe and what we do... Because we believe it. Now, we've spent weeks talking about God and humanity and salvation and the scriptures and the church and discipleship and spiritual formation. If you've missed any of it, go back and listen to the podcast. For the next two weeks, I'm going to do something that we've yet to do in Van City's near seven-year history and use what we hold to be true about all those things God and salvation and the scriptures and the church to wrestle with one of our culture's most divisive issues: sexuality and gender. So there's a lot of work to do tonight. I understand that there's something on television, but you guys are here. So I can assume that you're ready to get into it, right? You all right? Great. Wow, thanks. Okay, whistling and everything. Let's begin by reading from 1 Corinthians. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of respect and reverence for the inspired and authoritative scriptures? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. Do you not know, Paul writes, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, before we go any further than this, I want to issue a few disclaimers about what's to come. The first is this In March, like I said earlier, we will celebrate the seventh anniversary of our first Sunday gathering as Van City Church. Now, during, yeah, exactly. It's pretty amazing. During those seven years, I and the other teachers at Van City, both guest and home, have taught on numerous occasions. And at length, about what the Bible says and our church believes about things like lust or divorce or the objectification of women, about the horrors of the porn industry and the devastating effects of sexism and misogyny. Van City has supported and promoted and hosted recovery groups for pornography addiction for both men and women from day one and on into the future. We believe that the way of Jesus does include a sexual ethic but that we have been misled by a so-called culture war to believe said ethic includes little more than a mandate for heterosexuality as if this were the, were the only or most pressing thing that God has to say about our sexuality. And a tremendous amount of damage has been done by that misleading, not least among which is ignoring all the other very real, very destructive sexual sin and the erosion of God's ideal for marriage that has nothing to do with whether or not someone is gay. See, the reason that my friend decades ago felt as if after disclosing his sexuality he would not be welcomed or cared for by the church that raised him or the Christians in his life was because it was true. In that particular place and at that particular time, he had been privy to a quote-unquote Christian response to his sexuality as cruel, mean-spirited, unfeeling, and unthinkingly dogmatic. And that has been the experience of many, many people. Now today, I know from experience that there are many churches that regardless of theological issue or where they stand approach topics like this with grace and nuance, understanding that these issues intersect with real people and real stories, that there's pain and struggling and sincere questions about these things. Understanding our sexuality as disciples of Jesus is not as academic and purely sterile as, say, you know, questions about the age of the earth or whether or not one should dunk the communion bread in juice or drink it separately and if that matters or not. There are, right now people in this room. There will be people listening to this podcast for whom the question of sexuality or orientation or what the Bible says about either are personally pressing. There are people who have been legitimately hurt by the church's tendency to moralize at the expense of empathy and human dignity. Now, obviously, if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you know well enough our church is not perfect, but as much as it depends on us, it is our goal to accurately present the scriptures and the words of Jesus, to submit to what we believe them to teach, and to do so in such a way that demonstrates humility, compassion, and love for human beings made in God's image. Now, I know that many of us can't help but feel nervous or upset about broaching this topic at all. I get it. So I'm asking you, as your pastor and as someone whose responsibility it is both as vocation, you know, ordained by God, I believe, and just as my job throughout the week to teach the Bible, as much as it depends on you, hear me out, be patient, and go with me for the next little stretch with as open a mind as you can. I'm going to do a little cultural background and a bunch of Bible stuff, and then in the end I want to offer some pastoral considerations, okay? Okay. Great, thank you so much. Now, if you're looking for some book recommendations, there's lots and lots of good writing on this topic, but the one wonderfully readable, balanced work that I would recommend is by my friend Preston Sprinkle. It's called People to be Loved. Now, as we get into the topic, John Tyson, He's an author and a pastor out in New York who has dedicated a a lot of time to studying and teaching this topic, and I've borrowed liberally from his work for our purposes tonight. He proposes three questions that we should use to navigate the subsequent conversation. If you're taking notes, these are the questions that disciples of Jesus set out to answer about same-sex relationships. What is my definition of godly sexuality and of a godly marriage? How did I get this definition, and how do the scriptures support this definition and what we have to understand even entering into a conversation like this one is that wherever you sit in the conversation itself the dialogue and debate around gay sexuality has been weaponized and militarized by the culture over time on both the right and left sides of the socio-political spectrum. And in that so called cultural war, tracking the timeline of American civil unrest, sexuality became a social justice issue. This likely happened on the hills of something called the Stonewall Riots in 1969, during which, if you know the story, a police raid on a gay bar in New York became violent, prompting the Stonewall patrons to fight back, eventually resulting in a series of protests. Amongst New York's gay community. This eventually birthed something called the Gay Liberation Front. Now, notice the kind of militant terminology already growing out of that upset. But because American culture was predominantly conservative at the time, moments like these could find no real purchase on the cultural landscape. But then, In the wake of the AIDS crisis of the 80s, during the early winter of 1988, approximately 200 recognized leaders of the national gay community came together in Warrington, Warrington, Virginia, of all places, for something that they called, and I quote, the War Conference, to organize a new plan for prioritizing gay rights and equality in America. And from that meeting, two Harvard grads with experience and expertise in uh, psychology and politics published a book called After the Ball. Now, the campaign we outline in this book, they write, though complex, depends centrally upon a program of unabashed propaganda firmly grounded in long-established principles of psychology and advertising. Now, they themselves, the authors of this book, describe the work as, again, and I quote, a carefully manufactured campaign of propaganda by world-class PR agents. The book's three-pronged approach was this desensitize the American people, I'm using language from the book, jam, that's their word, jam any dissent from anyone who opposes gay relationships and convert popular opinion to believe this is a good thing. And then this new approach found donors, like someone called Tim Gill, who's this wealthy software programmer and gay rights activist, who was also on the Forbes 400 list of American rich, America's richest people, Gill contributed big bucks to both advertising and political forces in order to advance gay rights in America. In a 27 interview with Rolling Stone, Gill argued that anyone who opposes us must be punished. These are his words, not mine. We must punish the wicked, he said. So now... The paradigm of moral superiority had bled from the conservative right into the campaign for gay rights on the progressive left, becoming a question of righteousness against the wicked, just as it was before, but now on the other side culminating in a new ideology in which any perceived dissent against a certain articulated sex ethic must be penalized and punished in the public square. Now, you know all about this nowadays through things like cancel culture and outrage culture. Um, Comedian Dave Chappelle has famously confronted his own backlash for what some describe as his penchant for homophobic and transphobic jokes. In a recent podcast, Chappelle described an escalating situation as his fans waited in line outside a theater and were confronted by angry protesters, Chappelle said, quote, they say that my jokes are somehow going to be the root cause of some impending violence. But I got to tell you, as abrasive as they were, the way they were protesting, throwing eggs at people, throwing barricades, cussing and screaming, none of my fans beat them up. In fact, the people in the crowd would just say, we love you, what are you talking about? He went on to say, again, quote, I'm not even mad that they take issue with my work. What I take issue with is the idea that because they don't like it, I'm not allowed to say it. Trying to silence a person like me, I don't think it has anything to do with being loved. They want to be feared. If you say this, then we will punish you. And you could almost hear the progressive eye roll at Chappelle's language when this made headlines just a few weeks ago. But I actually thought of Tim Gill's language, we must punish the wicked. Now, maybe all that sounds like I'm setting the stage for some kind of propaganda of my own. I'm really not. My whole point in bringing any of that up is to highlight the fact that many of us assume that what the culture believes about sexuality is the result of some kind of logical societal evolution, but many advocates and participants in the historic American gay rights movement would argue it wasn't that easy. And some would argue that it may have mutated into some kind of same, actually, dangerous, unthinking fundamentalism it set out to demolish, as is the case with author and journalist Andrew Sullivan, himself a gay man, who published an article in New York Magazine in 2018 titled, The Gay Rights Movement is Undoing Its Best Work. And just as the gay rights movement organized and militarized in America the religious right was similarly calcified in its pre-established dogmatic weaponry, intensifying its war rhetoric against its own definition of wickedness. Essentially, kind of storming the gala as the left shouts, we must punish the wicked, snatching the microphone and screaming, no, that's our line, you can't have it, we must punish the wicked. And this language of arms and demonizing the enemy pre-existent in conservative evangelicalism crept into progressive church circles with the advent of something called gay theology, and the arm race, arms race continued beneath the clumsy guise of quasi-Christendom. And what's fascinating about all that is when you read the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who also wrote into a world of incredibly progressive sex ethics, this master apprentice of Jesus took no such approach. Speaking specifically about sexually immoral, immoral culture, Paul wrote, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And the result of a culture so desperately hell-bent on the exact opposite approach is chaos and carnage and outrage, and in the wake of all three, desperation and exhaustion. Many, I think, feel justifiably embarrassed by the church's poor handling of sex ethics. Biblically credible theological positions or not, people have been dehumanized and treated poorly. Just a few months ago, I found out as I was researching this teaching, a church here in Vancouver made headlines when the pastor was quoted to have said, we don't allow LGBTQ people in our church or child molesters because we think they're dangerous. The demonizing and cultural warmongering didn't stay in 90s rural Georgia. It's here and now. And many of us have felt swept up in the chaotic maelstrom of cultural war uh, power dynamics and language policing and cancel culture who feel similarly exhausted by every new cancellation or that we have to listen to arguments about the fact that Gonzo came out as non-binary in this aesthetically bankrupt CGI reboot of The Muppet Babies. All (laughs) for the love of who cares, get this terrible cartoon out of here. Life on a battlefield is exhausting, especially when you actually have skin in the game. And if you're sincerely wrestling through your sexuality, then chances are you're just as exhausted by journalists arguing about a terrible Muppet Baby remake as you are by angry street corner evangelists and sandwich boards screaming about hell into a a megaphone. And it's in the midst of all that, that people like me then invite disciples and would-be disciples of Jesus to open their Bibles. And of course, we can't help it. All of our lenses and presuppositions color what the text has to say about human sexuality. How could it not? And as we get into the Bible stuff in just a few seconds, I feel as if it's important for us to admit that we can't help but bring our cultural baggage to these texts. And so we ask ourselves where do we begin in this process? With the scriptures and with centuries of the Jesus movement or with our own experience and feelings or the experience and feelings of someone we love? Experience and feelings are valid, don't get me wrong, but they are not authoritative for the disciple of Jesus. Now, we began this series with our theology of God, as a good father, he always and only wants good things for you, for his children. He isn't withholding or coercive or arbitrary or cruel. And then we talked at length about the brokenness of humanity. Our theology of the scriptures is trustworthy. And the church has the only venue for discipleship to Jesus for this reason. Because the church has had and does have a single unanimous position on the issue for hundreds and hundreds of years informed by the scriptures upon the authority of Jesus. And on that note, before we go on, a quick word on terms before we get into it. I don't know how familiar all of you are with this conversation, but somehow the whole back and forth got saddled with what I would argue are incredibly unhelpful labels, namely affirming and non-affirming. The problem with affirming is affirming of what? No one on either side agrees, really. And I just don't like that language. I don't think it's helpful. It's so loaded. So instead, I prefer and I will use the historic or biblical Christian sex ethic and the modern sex ethic. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the scriptures. Do me a favor and turn to Genesis, very first book in the Bible, chapter 2. This is uh, my wife Abby's critique of Um, So many of my teachings, she's like, do we always have to go all the way back to Genesis? It's always with Genesis. Yes, Genesis chapter 2. Let's read beginning with verse 18 when you're there. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, brought them to the man to see What he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the sky, the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That word suitable in verse 18 as in I will make a helper suitable for him, and is a compound word called konekdaw uh, in Hebrew. And it can be tricky to translate because it actually combines one word that means alike and another word that means opposite or against or in front of. And this word is the ancient Hebrew uh, argument for why Eve qualifies as a romantic companion for Adam and it is in her similarity as a human, but her difference as a female that makes her God's design for marriage. And this uniquely specific turn of Hebrew phrasing is quoted all throughout the scriptures in references to God's will and purpose for human romance and marriage, including the teaching of Jesus himself. Now, I've heard people argue that, oh, Jesus never said anything about same-sex relationships, but that's misleading, I think, because it implies that, one, Jesus didn't know anything about the Old Testament that he constantly quoted, and two, that Jesus was completely oblivious to his host culture's progressive sex ethic. So look at it this way. I'm a pastor, you know, I went to seminary, I teach Bible in the Portland metro area. If someone came up to me and said, "Josh, what do you believe about God's ideal for marriage?" and I just quoted Genesis 2, "A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh." This is, by the way, exactly what Jesus did when asked for his paradigm on marriage. Now, of course, you would assume that I knew what I was doing by quoting Genesis. I live in a culture with a hyper-progressive sex ethic. I study the Bible for a living. I'm acutely aware of the issue's cultural divisiveness. And I answer with Genesis 2, a man will be united to his wife. It would be enough to stir controversy on inference alone. But with Jesus, we somehow assume that he knows less about the Bible and the world than me. No, the worldview of Jesus, when we grant that he actually knew what he was saying, was informed by Genesis and the Hebrew Scriptures. God's ordered design for human romance and marriage in Genesis is this. Both partners are human. That's important. Both partners come from different families. And both partners display sexual difference, as in male and female. Now, this also has to do with God's design of woman as entirely equal bearers of the divine image. That word in Genesis, uh, helper, as in I'll make a helper suitable for him, can be kind of misleading in English because depending on the reader, it can sort of accidentally imply subordination. The Hebrew word there is ozer, and it's used often in the scriptures to describe God himself. And helper, in that sense, makes Perfect sense. It fits. God is our helper. There's absolutely no subordination implied. God is our helper, but he is in no way inferior to or beneath us. So there's absolutely no subordination implied by Genesis 2.18 about women. Woman is entirely equal to man in value, image of God, and divine purpose. She is not his maid, not his subordinate, not the help, and she is necessary to display God's full design for romance and marriage, in that she equally expresses the image of God, but in a different way, in her God designed womanhood. More on that next week. Jeez. So, just as God ordered light and darkness, sky and sea, day and night, humans, animals, you can see the pattern, the motif, the climax of said masterpiece is male and female a beautiful display of complementary God-designed difference. That's the setup. Now, let's go to everyone's favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus. (laughs) I actually wrote the word woo in here, but you guys beat me to it. Okay, you all know it's here, so you ready for this one? I'm going to read it out loud. Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then Leviticus 20.13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Good grief. Now, at this point... In the Bible's epic meta-narrative, the people of Israel have been freed from slavery in Egypt and they are en route to something called the Promised Land. And as God brings them out of the culture of slavery in Egypt, he calls them to a, a new and unique way of life in order that they might be set apart from all other nations of the world. It's all about something called holiness, which is just a word that means unique, set apart, dedicated to something else. And Leviticus unpacks this thing called the Holiness Code that outlines pragmatic instructions for exactly how that uniqueness is to be realized amongst God's people. And here's where this gets really tricky. The easy thing to do would be to sweep Leviticus as a whole under the rug of cultural context. The Old Covenant, it's not applicable in any way to modern Christians, and then we wouldn't have to deal with all the kooky stuff it says in Leviticus. And while it's true that the Holiness Code is not specifically applied as it once was to Christians under the New Covenant established by Jesus, meaning, you know, we don't go all in for mildew regulations or Sabbath laws or obviously executing people who have gay sex. But please listen to me on this. We also don't throw out the Old Testament altogether. Even Leviticus informs our ethical understanding of God's design for human flourishing. Jesus, for example, quoted Leviticus often. Weird, huh? More than any other Old Testament passage. Paul and Peter, they quote from Leviticus as well. So look at it this way. Yes, the passages that I read from Leviticus are obviously incendiary, strongly worded. Even they make me go, oh, yikes, jeez but they are the same they are from the same unit of teaching that also condemns incest adultery child sacrifice bestiality theft lying exploiting the name of god for personal agenda oppressing your neighbor cursing the deaf injustice in the legal system slander hate and prostituting one's own daughter the specific culturally anchored application of the holiness code may have changed. But God's broader moral vision for human flourishing has not. And that is why, hermeneutically, meaning, you know, how we understand and study the scriptures, Bible scholars have understood the strangeness of ancient Israel's lifestyle codes in three categories. Maybe you've heard of this. The moral civil and ceremonial law. The ceremonial law covers all that sacrificial guidelines, systems and stuff under the Old Covenant. The civil law applied to ancient Israel's theocracy as a unique nation-state, and the moral law is true and binding for all of God's people across time. Now, of course, you and I are not part of ancient theocratic Israel's nation-state, nor are we under the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant prior to the sacrifice of Jesus. But, The moral law continues to demonstrate God's will for human flourishing. This is why we can demonstrate that specific systems and guidelines for the handling of like mildew and menstruation no longer apply to us, but that God's will against things like adultery, oppression, child sacrifice, and human trafficking have not changed at all. So while it's true that rushing to Leviticus to win Bible arguments is a dangerous game, it's also dangerous to simply dismiss the whole of Leviticus as if it reveals nothing about the moral will of God. Now, let's take that and move to the New Testament and look at the writing of Paul in Romans. Romans is one of the New Testament's most theologically dense letters, so we don't have time to unpack everything here. For the sake of brevity, I want to kind of contextualize the text by paraphrasing the opening chapters. Beginning in chapter 1, Paul argues that all human beings are broken. They are bent out of shape, bent away from the truth of God and toward that which destroys us and other people and creation itself. For more on this, see, all of human history. And that's true of the Gentiles or non-Jewish people, and it's true of Israel, Paul argues. And if it had, been, if it had not been... For the saving work of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection, we would all be forever dead in our sin and guilty before God. And no amount of right behavior or rule following apart from the saving work of Jesus does anyone any good to save. And Paul argues that when human beings deify the self as arbiters of good and evil, just like they did in the garden, In our brokenness, we will reach for that which is outside of God's design for human flourishing and insist that we know better than God, making, in Paul's language, what is unnatural, natural. Thus he argues, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, There have been arguments made from the modern position that Paul is only condemning excessive promiscuous sexuality and or exploitative sexuality, but not monogamous same-sex relationships. But the historic position argues that such a reading of Paul fails to understand him in the greater context of Israel's story and of the metanarrative of scripture. See, Paul is Jewish. He is an expert on the Hebrew scriptures. He is condemning all sex that deviates from God's good design in Genesis. And we know this because Paul braids into his argument here in Romans, references and allusions to the creation account in Genesis. And Paul uses deliberately general language of mutuality rather than specifically condemning, condemning things like hedonistic excess or exploitative power dynamics. So he says things like, women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men rather than saying powerful men abused powerless men or some such thing. And this isn't the only passage where Paul presses this point. Earlier, we read from 1 Corinthians 6, where he wrote, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idol, immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, or thieves, and on down the list, will inherit the kingdom of God. There's also 1 Timothy. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, those terms that my Bible translates as men who have sex with men or those practicing homosexuality are tricky because they're unique to Paul and to these passages. He essentially combines a Greek word that literally means something like soft and a Greek word that can be translated men who have sex with men. But because the language is unique, some people have debated whether or not we can know exactly what Paul intended to condemn. But the historic perspective argues that such a reading fails to honor Paul's knowledge of the scriptures. Paul is actually using phrasing from something called the Septuagint, which was the the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by Jews in the first century. So Paul, who's an educated Jewish rabbi, a self-proclaimed expert of the law, takes the wordage from Leviticus, and he uses it to coin a unique but referential term that expertly makes his Torah-shaped point about God-ordained sexuality. The historic position, then, I would argue, honors Paul, the author, and his holistic understanding of scripture and how he brings it to bear on New Testament theology with literary sophistication. It's still, as it was, the Genesis paradigm. And that's the point. Across hundreds of years and throughout evolving cultural sensibilities, well aware of and deliberate with the language they use, the authors of Scripture, both Old Testament and New, beginning with Genesis and well into Jesus and Paul, consistently uphold God's design for marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman from different families in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. And this has been the historic position of the Jesus movement for more than 2,000 years and is thus the position of City Church. Now, in recent years, there was a new move to reevaluate the historic position on the grounds of new interpretation. So there, were this in, there was this influx of books published and discussions engaged that sought out to hold to biblical authority while arguing that the historic understanding of passages that seemed to condemn same-sex relationships were mistaken. And there was a lot of interesting work done And of course, uh, you you know, presumably and predictably a lot of outrage, but there was also a lot of, I think, very gracious, open-minded discussion between those of the historic position and those of the modern position. But eventually, the Orthodox community and many within many, many traditions of the Christian faith arrived at the same conclusion, and much of the modernist interpretation uh, camp eventually relented. So, Lewis Crompton, for example, he was a Canadian scholar, a gay man, who pioneered something called queer studies. He wrote this According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of the period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relationships under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. Again, not a Christian, not a conservative scholar, or anything like that. Now, because there was a time when many of the modern perspective were arguing, look, if Paul had more time, he'd eventually come to the same conclusion as us. They argued he just didn't know about sexual identity or about orientation or about healthy, monogamous, same-sex love. So, they argued, we need to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he would know better if he were here in 2023 or whenever. But again, such an argument fails to acknowledge the historical context of the world in which the New Testament was authored. A world in which gay sexuality, gender ambiguity, cross-dressing, pederasty, monogamous, same-sex relationships, and marriages, all of it was represented and acknowledged in the culture when the authors of Scripture put pen to paper. And that's not some kind of wacky, conservative, homophobic, wishful thinking. This is something documented in non-religious scholarship about the Roman Empire, as well as in Greek philosophy and in the ancient world, in history, and in art. Scholar N.T. Wright says this, When I read Plato's Symposium, when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, that it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, the point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people regard as long-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. In fact, I read this week that there are non-Christian, non-religious, really, historical studies arguing that the ancient world had ideological paradigms for same-sex relationships and practice as something more than just pleasure or hedonism, and more like what we would describe as orientation and sexual identity or gender identity, meaning... Though the ancient paradigms for what we now call something like LGBTQ identity and lifestyle used different language, obviously, and they were clearly pre-scientific, it was not otherwise dissimilar to our world in that every orientation, expression, and configuration of sex and romance and marriage existed back then as it does now, as did the advocacy of these things as essential to personhood. And the Jewish people were well distributed throughout the ancient Mediterranean and exposed to all of this as a part of their everyday life. And though there were passages of the Torah that inspired debate and even unique interpretive application, the people of God were in unanimous agreement for centuries before Jesus and for centuries after on the Genesis paradigm of sex and marriage as designed by God for one man, one woman, and a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant and the same has been true throughout church history so some will understandably rush to arguments about things like slavery or the oppression of women to point out how the church has gotten things wrong before which is absolutely true but on those issues scholars and historians can actually use scripture and tradition to say look here's where this was debated here's how we got it wrong and here's what the scriptures actually teach and what the church has believed across the centuries Read Genesis. Read through the Gospels. Look at Jesus' honoring of women, the women who led the early church. Look at Paul's theological undoing of slave master power dynamics. The same thing cannot be done with same-sex relationships. God's design for marriage is Edenic, And core to his paradigm for human flourishing, and the scriptures consistently reject any and all deviations from God's design from Genesis to Revelation and throughout church history. And confronting what seems to be a scholarly consensus on that note, many of the modern perspective who had once set out to argue for a pro gay reading of scripture without giving up ideas like the inspiration or authority of the Bible, eventually arrive at something of a stalemate. And so the argument kind of changed over the last 10 or 20 years from, hey, we just need to read Scripture differently to we need to admit that Scripture can be off. Thus, many of the modern argument concede that the Bible does not affirm same-sex romance or relationships, just the opposite, actually. But, they argue, the authors of Scripture's Or or they also did understand what they meant, what they meant, and what and why they said it, and no amount of hermeneutical gymnastics can explain that away. But they go on. But to that end, the Bible is just wrong. The Bible is ancient and antiquated and a product of its people and place, pre-enlightened and in many ways, unfortunately, bigoted and uninformed. And so the idea of the scriptures as inspired by God and containing the delegated authority of Jesus begins to crumble. And since the Bible is how we receive the delegated authority of Jesus, the validity of the teachings of Jesus similarly begin to erode and Christianity itself becomes not a unique story about how the one true God is making the world right in Jesus, but a collection of subjective spiritual encouragements open to the interpretation of the individual who then becomes the arbiter of their validity. Okay, now, that was a lot, I know, but before we end, I want to take just a few more minutes, if you'll let me, and bring this to bear on church, on our church in particular. Now, I have friends who are attracted to members of the same sex. And there are people here at Van City for whom this topic is much more than a theological debate, but a very real, often painful issue in their own lives, reaching out into relationships and family and upbringing and what they do and don't believe about God Himself. And at Van City, we are not interested in a Bible-thumping dogma that dehumanizes men and women made in the image of God, reducing real suffering and existential crises to black and white rule mongering. We are not interested in doctrinal positions on sexuality that vilify gay people whilst maintaining a convenient silence on the painful struggles and dangers of heterosexual sin. But if you could hear my conversations with the people I know, friends of mine, people in this church, pastors in the larger city and the area, navigating their sexuality as people who are attracted by two members of the same sex, you might be surprised. Now here's one example. A while back, I was on a walk with someone who is straight, but who, scribes, who subscribes to the modern sex ethic. And they were upset that Van City takes the historic or what I call the biblical position. They said to me, I'm just bummed that we would not welcome people from the LGBTQ community at our church. Now, of course, we would welcome anyone in our church, into our church and into our community, regardless of sexuality or whatever it is that they think or don't think. But for this person, the biblical perspective on sexuality, on sexuality equaled not welcoming. And Van City's position eventually led to this person leaving our church. Now, fast forward. Sometime later, I'm sitting with another person involved in our church, not straight for whom what they called same-sex attraction is part of their story and their journey. And this person told me that when they first came to City and they saw you know, a bunch of young people and tattoos or whatever, they worried, that maybe our church took the modern perspective. And if we did, this person told me, they would have to start looking for a new church. And this other non-straight person said to me, I don't want a church to tell me what I want to hear because they think I want to hear it. I want to be called to the way of Jesus when it is comfortable and when it is uncomfortable. And when I share stories like that one with a friend of mine who's a pastor for whom same-sex attraction is also a part of their story, he'll say things like, yeah, there's nothing worse than the straight ally. And obviously he's being hyperbolic and funny, but his point is that our kind of ever-present faux-woke social media culture has created legions of militant straight allies who have a lot to say but don't actually have skin in the game. This same-sex attracted person in our church who told me that they would have left if we turned out to have the modern take on sexuality, they said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, but they said, you know, when I've opened up with other people, about my journey with same-sex attraction. I thought that I would get a lot of conservative, fire and brimstone, you know, condemnation just for feeling this way, but I haven't yet. All the pushback I get is from people I know with the progressive position telling me I'm wrong and telling me how I should and shouldn't express my sexuality. I have friends today, like that friend of mine in high school, for whom their experience early on and for as long as they can remember was attraction to the same sex. And for the sake of faithfulness to the way of Jesus, bringing to bear the authority of the scriptures, the consensus of the Jesus movement, and their own experience, some are embracing a lifestyle of celibacy, while others are open to the possibility of a relationship of someone of the opposite sex at some point if that happens. Now, I think... One of the biggest mistakes and misunderstandings that tumbles out of this complex conversation is that for a long time, some of the historic position insisted that same-sex attraction itself is always chosen and controllable and evil. And the appropriate pushback was and is, no, there are people who do not consciously choose same-sex or any attraction at all, and that we learn in James, in the New Testament, that desire itself is not sin, but that it can lead to sin when acted on and indulged. Now, scientifically, I looked and looked and looked, there's no consistency consensus on what factors, be they genetic or environmental or circumstantial or something else entirely, contribute to or result in any given sexual orientation. And so the modern perspective argues, look, I didn't choose my orientation, okay, but then goes on to say, this is just who I am. But the story of the scriptures never vests sexuality in personhood. We reject any view that reduces the entirety of who you are down to who you sleep with. In the scriptures, personhood is much. More complex. Now, my friends who are celibate for the sake of Jesus tell me that they've been told by both those of the modern position and by their friends in the LGBTQ community that they are being oppressed. You're being made to deny who you are. Meaning, the expression of one's sexual orientation is fundamental to their humanity. But, please listen to me on this, we as disciples of Jesus follow a master. The man that we believe was given all authority in heaven and on earth, who for thousands of years of the Christian movement was upheld and is upheld in worship as the truest expression of both God and complete Holy Spirit-empowered humanity and life to the fullest. And he didn't have sex. He didn't get married. He didn't have sex. He was celibate. And the scriptures teach that Jesus was, and I quote, tempted in every way. There is no reason to think that Jesus was some kind of robot free of human biology and desire. And it was easy for him because he just didn't want to express his sexuality. So the progressive sex ideology insists that Jesus never enjoyed the true freedom of his personhood. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, when he wrote it down, no wife, no sex. Or many great heroes of Christianity, from St. Francis to Mother Teresa, were they oppressed or less than fully realized for their celibacy? See, the story of the Scriptures is not that being gay is the ultimate sin, not that orientation is always voluntary, nor that sexuality is essential to personhood. Sexuality is part of who you are, but it isn't who you are. The story of the scriptures is that all people, men and women, straight, cis, and LGBTQ are broken. That our sexuality, all of us, suffers the effects of our brokenness and the brokenness of a fallen world. And in the story of the scriptures, all people are invited to bring all of themselves all of their brokenness into the healing light of God's love and to allow God to define what is best now and always when it happens to harmonize with cultural sensibilities and when it does not. So yes, all of us have very real innate desires that we do not consciously choose and that are contrary to the will of God and the way of Jesus. And the invitation of Jesus has and will always be come and die. Every single one of you come and die. Take up your cross every day and follow me. Do I honestly believe that Jesus would ask someone to deny their legitimate, innate desire, something they truly want, and that the world around them says is good and beautiful? Yes, I do. Now, of course, some will say, easy for you to say, Mr. You know, White, heteronormative, cisgendered male with a wife and kids. I get it. Part of that critique is totally fair. But all of us are going to have to take up a cross. And inevitably, at some point on the journey, at several points on the journey, someone else's cross is going to seem heavier than yours. This is the journey of discipleship within the family of the church. And all this is what I have to say to the church What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I don't have any doctrine for pop culture. I'm not interested personally in meddling with the affairs of the state. I would not presume to hold someone who isn't even a Christian to a Christian standard. If I don't like the animated pride parade on Blue's Clues or the non-binary preschool gonzo, I just won't watch it. There's no, and I won't watch it because it looks terrible. (laughs) These things are cranked out in a factory, I'm convinced of it. There's no war against the culture, and there's no assimilation into it. For us, there is the way of Jesus, and that's it. If I were a piano teacher, for example, and a student came to me and said, I want you to teach me, then I would have expectations, and I would have doctrine. And I would have practices for them. That's how music works. That's how you learn it. That is what it takes to become a master under a master. But I wouldn't walk down the sidewalks barking at strangers and pedestrians, why aren't you at home practicing your scales? What the? To the non-apprentice, a master's way of life would seem bizarre and restrictive, and hopelessly demanding, but to the one who says, teach me this way of life, the world must become a different place altogether. And it often feels as if we are carrying out this way of life in a war zone, with what can feel to some like overwhelming societal pressure to believe other than what the Bible and Jesus and the church have taught, especially if you're active on social media. But, this matters. I've had people ask me, does it really matter? Why not just embrace the modern perspective? It would make things a whole lot easier. But Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. For Jesus, practice without belief is empty, just as faith without works is dead. I spoke with someone years ago who asked me, could vanity ever adopt a modern progressive sex ethic? And I remember telling them, listen, we are never going to say Jesus was wrong. And we will never say that the Bible is not inspired and authoritative in the lives of disciples of Jesus. Take that how you will. I feel no trepidation in saying it. And when people ask me for the bottom line on Van City's doctrine of sexuality, of course, I'll answer the question. But I would argue that the actual question is this. What do you believe about the delegated authority of Jesus in the scriptures? Of course Of course there's room for process and wrestling and figuring things out. And if you don't agree fundamentally with every single thing I've said up here, no one's going to rush you out the door. There is time and space to work through this. But what does it mean for Jesus to be master, to be Lord, to be God? And what happens when someone is willing to settle into a mindset or way of life in which Jesus or the scriptures are wrong? This is about more than just theological nitpicking, but what it means to follow Jesus at all, as Lord and God. If someone were to argue, oh, you're making a lot out of a peripheral issue, I would argue with respect, the question is actually about the authority of Jesus. We want all of Jesus, when his truth accommodates and encourages us, which it does, often by the grace of God, but also when it challenges us and provokes us. And we can Accept the way and the truth and the life of Jesus without giving in to war zone mentality. This is what I like to call grace without compromise. I see no reason whatsoever to hide or water down what I believe to be true about the scriptures and the way of Jesus, just as I see no reason to weaponize it. I believe that I can hold a theological position that informs my belief and my practice, without succumbing to the cultural narrative of black and white fundamentalism. What is my definition of godly sexuality and of godly marriage? How did I get this definition, and how did the scriptures support this definition? I don't know where this finds you. Maybe you feel, at least to some extent, reactive. For yourself, or for the sake of someone you know, a loved one. Maybe this collides uncomfortably with your own story. I don't know. I know for sure that there are people in our church who are straight or otherwise, people who don't know a single gay person, and people who have LGBTQ friends and family. And all I want to say is this Welcome to this messed up place, the church. You are welcome here right now, wherever you're at, as beloved of God, and all of us are trying to untangle our own stories and desires and figure out what it means to be a human being and follow Jesus well. This is a safe place to do that, and I believe it is a very good place to do that. And I understand that piles of Bible verses and theology speak are no simple balm for legitimate hurt and what often feels like the chaos of working out what we believe about sexuality in such a divisive place and time. So my invitation is simple, that each of us, all of us, would continue to bring all of our personhood before Jesus in reverent submission and faithful trust whether you're single and lonely or battling porn addiction or navigating the fallout of a divorce or an affair or wrestling with your attraction and your orientation, I can't pretend to know what it's like to be you. But we can, as a church, commit to being in this with you. It won't always be easy, and it certainly won't always be accommodating, but I believe that the way of Jesus is always good. If you want to follow Jesus... Each of us, all of us, we have to come before him as master and friend and plead, if you really offer life to the fullest like you say you do, if you really reveal the very essence of God himself, then teach me how to live. Teach me the way. Tell me what to believe, the truth, and I will trust you that you will give actual freedom, the life. And that only you, Jesus, offer all three. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. I do believe that this is a good place and a safe place to be in process, to figure out what it means to follow Jesus wherever any of us are in that process. And it is a place where we will be invited to follow Jesus faithfully. All of us, every part of us, more and more over time, brought into the healing, transforming light of his love. And I think we can do that empowered by the spirit of god and together as a family. So let's pray and ask god to teach and guide us. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.